Well, I put on the board a bit of an outline of um, at least what I think the major movement is in the book of Romans chapter 8, um, having uh, given you again a review and a little sense of where we are at in our, as we took a long break from our studies in uh, the letters of Paul, our studies in this Roman epistle. Um, we've come back and um, gave you a little bit of a, a review, a little bit of an understanding at least of what I think some of the uh, issues are with reference to this whole question of flesh and spirit. That's terms we run across again and again. And you know, I really thought I used this thing to write all this stuff and I'm wondering why it looks so white. We're just underlining it. No, I must have used the other chalk. <laughs> That's the reason it doesn't look yellow. <laughs> we, um, Irene get, uh, gave this yellow chalk to us so that we could uh, see it a little bit better. And uh, you probably could if I'd used it, but I didn't. So anyway. My fault. But I saw that Matt took a picture of it. You want to take a picture of it and enlarge it at home? You probably will see it a little bit better. But um, one of the things that is of interest to me in the study of Romans, when I was down at Montville, on, um, I guess it was Tuesday morning, I spoke to one of the pastors who told me he was listening to my sermons on Romans. And some of you remember, that's way back. What years were that, Tony, you, you recall? 2007 to 2016. Really? Okay, 2007 to 2016. So we're like seven years out from Romans 16. How many years out from Romans 8? Or how many years out from the other sermons that maybe he's listening to? I have no idea. But I had to tell him, well, you know, that was done a while ago. And I think, you know, though, you know, my basic views of the theology of Romans is not all that different. My understanding of how it's all put together by Paul is a bit different. And um, I told him I'm much more attuned, at least in my own mind, to the fact it is a church letter. It's not a, a systematic theology. It's not an evangelism manual. It's a letter to a church with their concerns being the things we should be concerned about and not looking to impose upon the text our modern concerns. And so we need to learn at least a bit as far as we can understand as we're reading somebody else's letter, somebody else's mail, um, reading only one part of it, yet to try to see what it was that Paul was concerned with. And another thing that I'm concerned to see in this time going through the book of Romans is what sometimes they call today a narrative substructure. Ah, why does he do that? Why don't I talk about things like narrative substructures? Because, um, again, people that do the work of interpretation, I mean, serious work in biblical interpretation, uh, mean something by those words. And a narrative is simply a story. And a substructure is just something that undergirds something maybe that you write. Maybe you're looking to write something to someone and you have in your mind um, an account of an event that happened in your past. And that's really the understructure or the un undergirds the structure of the things that you're writing. Maybe you're making a little bit of a dig in there that only they know because only they know what you guys went through together. But just throwing that in because that's... That experience, that story, that event in your history with them is really undergirding the things you're saying now. You might say it in a, in a cleaned up way that maybe it's not totally obvious, but that's what a narrative under, uh, un, um, substructure would be. And the idea would simply be, and we're seeing this in Hebrews a lot Wednesday night, the letter to the Hebrews, is that there is... There are the stories of God's dealings with Israel 
as a nation, or stories having to do with the fall from um, um, uh, in the Garden of Eden that clearly do enter in to the choice of words and the argument as it is proceeding. And in my estimation, there's some passages of Scripture, if you don't go to the fact that they're really relying upon the story of God's redemption of his people enslaved in Egypt, there's statements that you just scratch your head and say, well, why did he say it that way? Why did he put it that way? I just don't get it. And when you realize that really what they're doing is they're opening up a bit of what God did in that prior redemption, redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt, bringing them out into the wilderness, bringing them to worship and to serve and to enter into the inheritance, um, that those are themes that the New Testament writers are using. They're employing those things. And, and, and I was, that man who was pre- listening to my, my sermons uh, to help him in his own preaching, I hope they're helpful anyway, um, that was what he was listening to them for, um, that one of the things that we, you know, we, we talked about is um, just how much the Old Testament plays in. And of course, as parent, as we mentioned to one another, that the, the quotations of the Old Testament are vast. There's so many quotations, Paul citing the law and the prophets again and again and again. But again, I think there's also this matter of the story of, of um, well, from slavery to sonship that you have here, from suffering to glory, that has its Old Testament counterpart, and it does enter into the ways in which Paul is saying, in essence, both Jew and Gentile in the church at Rome have entered into the blessings of Israel's story. The Jews get it by right of their descent from Abraham. The Gentiles get it because they've been engrafted into the olive tree that he describes in chapter 11 of this book. And they've been a wild, uh, you know, they're taken from a wild olive branch and they're brought into this olive tree uh, to partake of the blessings of, um, of, of God's Israel, of the covenant relationship that Israel had with God that we now have through Jesus Christ. And uh, so there's continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. This, we're not in different worlds here. Um, and so I think that's found in Romans chapter 8, and we saw a bit of it with this flesh-spirit um, uh, matter uh, in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Numbers, Numbers 11. And, uh, you know, we, we spent the whole class, I didn't anticipate doing that last week, spending a whole class just back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Numbers, back looking at that event. But I think that does set something, not just of a pattern, but it helps us define what that flesh-spirit contrast is. Because, again, they were taken out of Egyptian bondage, but the realization is Egypt wasn't taken out of them. There was hankering to go back in matters of food and matters of drink. Oh, that we had died in Egypt. Why not in the wilderness? Why did they want to die in Egypt? Because there was this affinity they had for Egypt. They had been long held in bondage and captivity. They had learned Egyptian customs. They probably worshipped Egyptian gods. And they ate Egyptian food. And they wanted Egypt back. Oh, that we died in Egypt because they were Egyptians at heart. Um, God says they're uncircumcised in heart. They never really fully became something other than uh, dwellers in Egypt, even though God led them out into the wilderness and had to be another generation that had at least uh, not Egyptian practices so clearly learned. And that really becomes the, 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 the model for this flesh-spirit dichotomy. Because you see, when we're taken out of the world, it's not that the world is always taken out of us. That we have these yearnings, these desires, these practices, these habits that we've learned. 
and we carry out those habits in our bodies, in our flesh. And it becomes our, like our default position. You know, if, if, you, if you grew up in a home where everybody was slamming the cabinets whenever they were mad or the refrigerator whenever they were mad and uh, they expressed anger in that way that the, man, the house took a hit from their anger. Better than them hitting the kids, indeed, out of anger. But that's their habit. That's what they're ha- they become habituated to do. That's how they react. That's how they respond. You become a Christian and you're going to go back home and something's going to happen. You're going to slam the door anyway. <laughs> You need a counterbalancing force or power to teach you a different way. You're just going to go back into default setting time after time after time if there's no pushback given, if there's no impetus given, there's no force or uh, power given. And the reality is the gospel is that power that counterbalances the flesh, and particularly as Paul sees it in the giving of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the great enablement from God to become doers of the law from a gospel perspective. Not to attain righteousness, but had Jesus having attained righteousness for us. Um, he so does what he does so that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us. And how is it fulfilled in us? Really through the power of the Spirit. And this is all the story of how we as Americans and British people in the 21st century who are habituated to sin. We just go back to it again and again and again. We're in bondage to sin. That's the biblical theme that's used again in this letter. We're slaves. We're captives. Just like Israel was captive to Egypt. We are captive to our sins. But now we've been set free. We've been set free. The gospel has come... To set us free. Jesus is the great liberator. He sets free the captives. And being set free from sin, we become servants to God and we have our fruit under sanctification, even eternal everlasting life. But that doesn't mean there's not the, the, the tension there. That we're not prone to go back. And the only counterbalancing power that, 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 that will bring us to a greater measure of um, conformity to God's ideal and God's will is the spirit that's been given to us. And that's what Paul's addressing here. Is that it's those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. These are the ones who are the sons of God, who are being led by the Spirit of God. And so we come out of slavery to our sins. And though all of the things we were once addicted to and the practices we once engaged in is not fully eradicated by the power of the new birth, yet the whole orientation of our life does begin to change. It becomes oriented towards God. It becomes the desire for, for holiness. And then we ask the question, well, how can I rid myself of these practices? How can I actually transcend the power of the flesh that I'm always going back to again and again and again? Well, again, there is this counterbalancing force. Now, in in Galatians, it's it's expressed in terms of a warfare. The spirit battles against the flesh, and the flesh battles against the spirit. There's this war going on. And, you know, that really does accord again with this whole matter of liberation from Egyptian bondage. When you think of what it was that that the people of Israel were liberated to do, what was it they were liberated from Egyptian bondage to do? Well, one of the things it said that they might worship me in the wilderness... So worship is one of the things that the people of Israel were to do. And then they were also to, to walk before the Lord. And that's this emphasis in Romans, how we walk. That we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Uh, Abraham was told, walk before me. Um, uh, 
Israel was to walk in God's ways. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.5, I think, gives that statement. There's uh, many mentions of the whole question of how Israel walks or conducts themselves. And uh, they walk in accordance with God's ways and obedience to God's laws. And so there's worship, there's walking, and there's warfare. There is that warfare that they were called to do. They were trained to go into Canaan and to vanquish the adversaries. And so they were to be warriors as they entered into the land, to, that that land would be purified and that land would be uh, Israel's own uh, to dwell, uh, to supplant these Canaanites whose uh, the iniquity of the Amorite had at that point become so filled that the scripture tells us the land itself would vomit them out. And so Israel is now going to come replace those people and there is this warfare. Well, we don't, we don't engage in a warfare of flesh and blood, but we do engage in a spiritual warfare. And so we are freed from sin to become slaves to God all to the end that we would be his worshipers, that we would be his warriors, and that we would walk before him unto all well-pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And again, that whole picture is there in the Old Testament, and there is in this language that the New Testament uses, this narrative, this story under, under, undergirding it, this narrative substructure under the words of Paul. That again, sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. If you're scratching your head saying, well, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't see it, I'll give it some time. Maybe you will. If not, that's okay. It's kind of like, uh, you know, what they call sometimes the way in which Scripture gets cited, and you know, well, they're calling upon that passage of Scripture. Sometimes it's not a citation. It doesn't say to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophets saying, but sometimes it does say, uh, doesn't, I'm sorry, but sometimes the, the relationship is so strong, the language is so strong, we call that an illusion. We call that an illusion. The New Testament writers clearly is alluding to what happened in the Old Testament. But sometimes it's not uh, cited, or it's not really strong enough to be an illusion, and sometimes they call that an echo. And one thing about an echo, if you've ever been in a place where it's known for echoes, some people hear them and some people don't. <laughs> and that's really what it is with reference to the scriptures. Sometimes you hear echoes, at least I hear them, and you might not hear them, and I'm not going to fault you for that. But uh, I would just plead for just a little bit of patience on your part that I can express what I think is an echo and uh, don't think I've lost my mind in suggesting it you know, just because you don't hear it. Listen a little further. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. But that's, that's okay. Um, so we have this narrative under, uh, substructure under the passage that I'm trying to be more sensitive to. And uh, sometimes I don't hear what other writers say they hear. And I scratch my head and say, I, I don't get that. I, I, I just don't see that. But Romans 8, I do see it. I mean, to me, it's so very, very clear that this whole matter of being made free from the law of sin and of death, um, the whole matter of what God has done in his own son, uh, to not just to bring us out from slavery, but to bring us into a relationship to God of sonship, this matter of the spirit of adoption that's mentioned in chapter 8. Also, our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, speaks of the culmination or the, the, the final uh, salvation in a, new, in a new heavens and new earth in which resurrected bodies uh, are glorified in God's uh, presence. These are things that scripture holds forth in terms of this matter of sonship, adoption. And um, in chapter 9, I mentioned this last week, but it's worth underscoring. It tells us it was to Israel belong the adoption. That's one of the things that were the things that Israel was 
blessed with? What advantage has the Jew? Much every way. Chapter 9 gives us the delineation of the advantages that the Jews had. To them belonged the glory, the, 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 the worship, the, um, and the adoption. The adoption belonged to Israel. When, when, when Moses came to Pharaoh, he said, let my firstborn son go, or else I will take your firstborn. That was the, <laughs> you know, you'll let my son go. You're jeopardizing the well-being of your firstborn son. And Jesus is called here the firstborn among many brethren. And sonship is attained uh, really through the son. That's why so many times in this passage, Jesus is not just called the Christ, or he's not just called Jesus, he's called the son. The son. God sending his own son. By the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Because this work of the Son brings the adoption of sons about. He's the firstborn among many brethren. We become the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Though that's Galatians 3. It's really undergirding this whole matter as well. And when we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we partake of the blessings of Israel. God's own Son. So I think that's how it works. Jesus is the true Israelite. He's the perfect Israelite. He obeyed God perfectly. And because he's the true Israelite, we become engrafted into, the, into Israel. And, and because he's the firstborn son, we become sons through faith in Jesus Christ. So Israel's story becomes our story. Even though I'm the only one here, I think, that has these blessings by, by, by right. But you have it by... Well, we all have it by grace. We all have it by mercy. But um, the difference between Jew and Gentile, which of course is the really important theme in the Roman letter, that uh, the Jews and Gentiles recognize the reality that there's no distinction. Although there is priority. There is this Jewish priority that's in Romans, but there's no distinction in terms of the reality of who and what we are in sin and what we are in grace. Anyway, so I think that's what undergirds it. Um, so you have Paul speaking about what the law could not do. The law dis- disables, or it unables. It, it can't do anything for us. And uh, I don't know if you caught last week that reality that the law brings death. Because you have all these sins that Israel was committing before Sinai, before the giving of the law, that were tar- horrible sins, sins of ingratitude, sins of testing God, sins of complaining against his leadership and all the rest. And though God rebukes them, reproves them, he doesn't kill them. The other side of Sinai, same sins, same sins. And yet the reality is that death ensues in the very same sins that were done. And the law came in only to highlight the transgression. Only to make the transgression much worse than it was before. So I think even historically, the story of Israel in the wilderness, it undergirds what Paul's teaching about the nature of the law, just highlighting sin, adding to transgressions. And the law can't bring life. The law brings death in its wake. And it's not that the law is bad. The law is not bad. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is the perfect standard of righteousness, but it's not a standard we can keep. It's not anything we can do. Um... It's be, it, only Christ can fulfill all that the law required and that's what Christ has done God has done what the law could not do because the law was weakened by our flesh weakened by our habituation to sin our default position that goes into the cravings of the world 
But this holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Son of God, came and performed that which was needed um, so that sin would be condemned in human flesh, in his own flesh, as he died upon the cross for our sins. And the whole end of the game is that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it's not just that those who believe... It's interesting, Paul doesn't say that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who believe. I mean, you might, might have thought that from the earlier part of the letter, when faith is the sole uh, criteria for righteousness. The righteousness of God is given to those that believe. The righteousness of God is from faith to faith. Faith is, is the key, right? Remember the old song about the, the train to come in? Faith is the key to get on board. The train is bound for glory. You had to live in the 60s and all those songs, but nonetheless, faith is the key. And you see it in the early part of Romans. But here he says, not just faith. He says, might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because you see, faith is the key, not only for that objective righteousness that we receive through Christ's sin-bearing and Christ's obedience and Christ, all that Jesus has done for us, but that also by the spirit, we actually might. Do something better than just perpetual sinning. <laughs> that in fact, righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in us. We might be gospel law keepers through the power of the Spirit that's been given to us. And it seems to me this works in, first of all, in the way we walk, that we walk in obedience to the word and law of God. And I think we'll say a little bit more about obedience in the morning message when we look at Jesus' words to Peter. Um, but then it's also what we mind, what we mind enters in here. Those those, the old the proverb is what controls the mind molds the life. You know, they, they do report that modern men say they think about sex like you know half the hours of the day. And I wouldn't be surprised when you see what's on television all the time and you see what pornography does in terms of imprinting images upon the minds of men. And so the reality is that lots of men are thinking through the day uh, about sex. That's the ruling passion. That's the ruling thing that controls their mind. And it really controls their lives as well. There's a a bondage to that that uh, they need liberation from. uh, I think I grew up as, uh, I was still telling so some relatives yesterday that even in my old age, I think the last thing that's going to go when my mind just begins to, you know, short, mem- short memory loss, long-term memory loss, I'm still going to remember baseball statistics. <laughs> I don't know that that's true, but I kind of think it will. Because I lived so many years of my life thinking about baseball, thinking about, uh, you know, I can tell you all the players of the 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers, believe it or not. And I don't know what the time's going to come, and I'm going to forget the names of those guys, but I learned it. It's kind of like learning poetry when you're young. It kind of sticks with you. Um, memorization of the, um, of the, of the uh, Chicago Cubs. I think I did this with you, didn't I? Yeah. I knew the Chicago Cubs of the early 60s. Who played where? And I got all the positions right, I think. Right? And I'm not even a Chicago Cubs fan, but baseball was a ruling passion of my life for so long. And what controls your, your mind, really, it molds, molds, oh, well, I didn't become a baseball player, but it, 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 it's something that is constant, it's persistent. And we need to have not the flesh ruling our minds. We need to thinking of the things of God. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian is you begin to learn and you begin to delight in the things of God. 
I mean, think about it after you were saved. I know it was true with me. I began to read the Bible. And it was like, wow, Jesus said that? Oh, let me read some more. What else did he say? And it's just like, it becomes something of, a, of an addiction to learn more and more and more of the things that Jesus said and did. And even though that whole set of desires was also there with the, another set of desires I hadn't fully dealt with, not that I fully dealt with everything in my life, not true, my, my wife will testify to that, um, anyone really could testify to that, and it, it's not true of any of us till we get to glory, but more and more, uh, I really relish the things of the gospel, I love to read theology in ways I've never, well actually, I used to read theology, but now what it, it, it's a different kind of theology, I weigh everything by the question, how much of, how much of this is driving me to my Bible? How much of what I'm reading is driving me into the text of Scripture? And how much of what I'm reading in the Bible is showing me more and more about the central figure of my Bible, who is Jesus Christ the Lord? And uh, those are really the central things that really governs a lot of my reading. Uh, if stuff isn't showing me that stuff, I, I put it aside and say, oh, maybe for another day, that, that might be useful, but not now, not in this point in my life, because I want my mind to be dominated by the things of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes, we're told in Jesus' words to his disciples in the upper room, to do what? To take the things of Christ and reveal them to us, to glorify Christ, to show us the things of Christ. Um, so our minds need to be renewed. He's going to, to tell us that, that by the mercies of God, uh, render your bodies a living sacrifice unto him. And again, he concretizes, it's not just, the flesh is the principle, the flesh is the domain of sin in which we live, like Egypt was the domain of life for the Israelites of old. But it's in the body that they lived in Egypt, and it's in the body that we practice sin. So that's why we have to mortify the deeds of the body. It concretizes it as the body in which we carry out these works. And so we're to render our bodies to God as living sacrifices, our members as servants to righteousness. <clears throat> it is that, uh, again, that... Uh, have this be, and it goes on to say in that passage, that's why I went there, is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. It's to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Whatsoever things appear, whatever things are of good report, whatever things, the whole list of, of graces and, 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 and uh, attributes that Paul mentions in Philippians 4, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Think on these things. And so Paul seeking to bring us out of this matter of slavery, bondage to sin, bondage to the flesh, to sonship. It's the son who does what's needed to bring us there, but he does what's, does what's needed to bring us there through the, his, his sacrifice and the power of his cross, as well as the giving of the Spirit, that we would be liberated from sin and death, that we would be um, walking in this, uh, according to the, not the flesh, but the Spirit, and we would be minding the things not of the flesh, but the spirit. You have these contrasts here in the way we walk and the way we think, the things we, we do and the things we set our mind upon. And then he also goes into the fact that this whole thing is a matter of life and death. The struggle is a matter of life and death. And it's, it's not that we're not safe and secure in Christ. We are. But um, again, being safe and secure in Christ still means that we serve in the present hour. I mean, the future is... Something assured to us, 
But yet, you know, it's a whole question of knowing what the future holds for us. We train to be what we're called to be. It's kind of like if you have ambitions to be a great preacher. If I had ambitions to be a great preacher, you know what I should have done? I should have done a lot of more study earlier on in my life so when I got to this point. <laughs> if, you, if you want to be a concert pianist, you better do, you know, the old, the old story, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. <laughs> you got to practice. Um, we have to practice the Christian life. We have to walk in accordance with the Spirit. We have to walk in conformity to Jesus. Because that's what we are called to. Whom, he's going to want to say, whom he foreknew, he did foreordain. To what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. And, and so it, this matter of how we walk is important because God's whole purpose, plan, and intention with reference to this salvation is to make us like Christ. Is to make us sons indeed. And it's not just a question that we're given the status of a son. It's not just a question that you got the adoption papers and you can bring them out and say, hey, I'm, I'm the son of, of God. You know, I'll show you my decision card. I'm, I'm the son of God. No, it's the spirit of his son. It's the spirit of adoption. It's the renovation of the inner life as well that is really key to the whole matter of the outer life, the way we walk and what we think is the fact that, uh, again, back to last week's study, it's the matter of would to God that all of God's people prophesied and all of God's people had the Spirit. That was Moses' desire, is that all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit. Again, Israel's problem being brought out of bondage in Egypt was that they were addicted to Egypt. They were addicted to the flesh, the bodily cravings. They said, we're not satisfied with this man of stuff. We want the food that we got in Egypt. And God's answer was to take the spirit off of Moses, give it to the people who would lead. And then a couple of guys are prophesying at the tent, and Joshua's jealous for Moses' honor Moses says no no let them prophesy would to God that this was a universal experience of all of the people what an easier time he'd have leading them if they had the spirit but the whole hope is that there would come a time when all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit which is actually what what Joel chapter 2 tells us God will do and what Pentecost brought is that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit I have to apologize, I'm doing these free associations, so I'm trying to think where I left off going down this, this route here. But you know, the fact is that it is a matter of life and death. It matters how we live. It's not just that we say, well, we're, you know, we're, we're safe, you know, we have the insurance for eternity, and so it doesn't matter what you do today. No, it, everything matters what you do today. Folks, we're practicing for glory. We're practicing for glory. Um, it matters what we do in this life. Revelation says their works follow them. Their works follow them. And this life means something. It's important what we do. And so he speaks about the life-death issue that's here. Because he says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, in verse 6. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
I mean, you think about it. You, you spent your, your day reading trash, thinking trash, doing trash, and you just end up feeling like you're just in, just in the garbage heap. There's nothing about that that's any, any good. You know, say, man, day, day well spent. <laughs> you feel wretched. You feel miserable. A Christian can't feel, live in that environment and not feel miserable, or else you're not a Christian. You've never known anything better than that, so you're no. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can say, "I got to get out of the garbage dump. I got to get into the realm of 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 the blessings God has promised to His people, the blessing of life." I've come not that you they should live in garbage heaps. I've come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. We've come to have joy and peace in believing. We're told. We're in a kingdom that's not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, later on in chapter 14. And so we want that peace that passes all understanding. We want that sense of well-being, that is the Hebrew shalom. It's the, you know, the sense that um, the blessing of God is, is, is with us and not his curse. We don't want any, anything to do with the covenant curses. We want everything to do with the covenant blessings that God affords us and God promises us and that we're, we, we're called upon to seek. So, you know, we, we know what realm we need to walk in. We know what things we need to think about. Um, and we know that the contrast, if, you, if, we, if we live in that realm and we walk in that way and we think upon those things, end of the day, you're just not a Christian. There's a, really a great contrast. There's, no, there's really no middle ground here. <laughs> there's this great contrast between the realm of the spirit and the realm of the flesh. And in this realm of the spirit, as we walk in the spirit, not perfectly, not sinlessly, till we get to glory, be it basically and truly, we walk in the spirit and we mind the things of the spirit. Not perfectly, by any means, but yet really and truly, the realm of life we live in is determined, dictated, governed by the reality of God's salvation and the Spirit of God that's been given to dwell in us. And so we move out of the realm of the law that is an unable to the Spirit that is the enabler. And then Paul tells him, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. In the words of verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, again, we're going to see here that part of what Paul's doing is not only having the narrative, under, uh, uh, the narrative substructure of Israel's experience governing his words, but he's also having the narrative of Jesus also as the substructure that is governing his words. And the narrative of Jesus here is a narrative of his death and his resurrection. Of death and resurrection. Uh, he began it in chapter 1. Um, and he speaks about the gospel. And he speaks about Jesus being the, um, the son of David, according to the flesh, but being the... Uh, um, um, I'm sorry... Born of the Spirit, I think, by the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. I think that's in chapter 1. I didn't get that language exactly correct. I remember the baseball statistics more than the Bible verses. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, but there it is, the very introduction of the letter. 
about Jesus being descended from David according to the flesh. Again, there, it's, it's according to really the, the realm of life we live in in this world. The genealogical records depict David as the true Davidic king, descended from King David. So being a true son of David, he qualifies as the Messiah. Be it declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then it's the death and resurrection of Christ. It is, the, again, the, the, the substructure of everything that comes. A lot of times it comes right to the surface. And Paul speaks about the one who, who, um, who died for our trespasses, was raised for our justification. Uh, don't you know, you who were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death. You were raised from death to newness of life. So death and resurrection is, is meeting us again and again and again. Well, here, conformity to Christ is the end game. You can see that later on. Whom he foreknew, that's in the words of verse 28. Whom he foreknew, I'm sorry, uh, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Part of this matter of walking in the Spirit, part of this matter of thinking, uh, of having the mind of the Spirit, is that we become conformed to Christ. That he is the model. And we are conformed to Christ, both in terms of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. So that if Christ is in you, and I think it means in you by the Spirit, again, Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's making intercession for us, but yet his Spirit comes to indwell us. So Christ is in us by the power of the Spirit. And if he's in you, though the body is dead, now the body here, I think at this point, He's speaking about the physical body subject to death. We're, we're not immortal in our bodies yet. We uh, will be, we're corruptible. We are mortal. Um, we have natural bodies that will die. And yet, if Christ is in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead, I'm sorry, he says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. If that spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we're people who are called into sonship with a sonship that brings in its wake um, elements that in the Bible belongs to sons. Part of what belongs to sons is this matter of conformity. Um, God made man in, in his image and in his likeness. His image and likeness in a created son. And I assume Adam is understood to be a son created by God. At least the genealogy of Luke traces it back to Adam, the son of God. Adam is a created son. And part of being a created son is to be an image. Adam had a son in his own likeness um, Paul tells the Ephesians uh, to walk in love I'm sorry to be uh, to be imitators of God he says as beloved children as beloved children to be imitators of God uh, be merciful for your heavenly father is merciful we're to reflect our heavenly father we're to reflect Christ and we have image. That's part of what uh, this whole matter of sonship is, is that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. And part of that is going to be seen in this whole matter of death and resurrection. 
Our bodies die, but we'll be raised, even as Jesus died, and Jesus was raised from the dead. But there's also this whole matter of death and resurrection. The fact that there is this greater hope that sons receive, and that is the inheritance. That sons are given the inheritance. Yeah, look at that. Doesn't yellow work better? Now when you take the picture, it'll actually show something. <laughs> and Paul's going to talk about this inheritance. And in fact, this inheritance, this glory that will be revealed to us through sufferings, and it's also part of the image, as he's going to talk about, is that Christ suffered for our sins, and we're called to suffer, that we may be glorified together with him. So he's going to this whole matter of image, inheritance. Um, there's other aspects to this relationship of sonship. There's this intimacy. And he's going to talk about um, he's talk about the prayer life. He's going to talk about how the Spirit helps us in our weakness uh, with groanings that cannot be uttered. Um, so I think there's a whole dimension of life in, 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 as God's people in the Spirit that brings to bear the fullness of the blessings of sonship. Um, that sonship accords with resurrection glory because that's the fullest display of the fact that these are the sons of God. Come ye blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, we are received sons into God's presence eternally. Um, so I think, that, again, all, all of these matters of Jesus' own story, the gospel story, is undergirding these words as well as the story of Israel's redemption as well. So you have a, a narrative substructure. Sub God loves to tell stories, doesn't he? He loves to tell stories. Israel's the great story of his redemption. Jesus is the great story of what he's done for our salvation. And both stories really undergird Paul's words. Almost every word he speaks has something of those elements to it that undergird uh, the story. Uh, this matter, again, we haven't quite f uh, finished this matter of death and life, uh, because he says in the words of verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We owe nothing to the flesh. The flesh has given us nothing. Uh, we lived in its realm for all, all, all unconverted years. And what fruit do you have now? And the things, he says in chapter 6, of which you are now ashamed. You, you got no benefit from any of it. What did it bring you except a lot of sorrow? What did it bring you? except a lot of guilt. What did it bring you? Except a lot of trouble and difficulty. You know. It's the realm of death. It's the realm of destruction. It's the realm of heartbreak. It's the realm of every imaginable evil. Is what our life was apart from the grace of the gospel, apart from Christ our Lord, apart from the giving of the Holy Spirit of God. We own nothing to the realm of the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then he, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you, you will die. Again, living according to the flesh means living apart from the Spirit, apart from minding the things of the Spirit, apart from walking in accordance with the Spirit. And all of that is walking apart from Christ. Because if anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit, um, then you don't have life. You're bereft of life. And the only thing that remains is death. So if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the natural result of life without the gospel. 
Life without Christ, life without the Spirit, life without any power that can overcome the natural tendency of the human heart to disobey God, to hate the things of God, to rebel against uh, our own good, and, and to live a life that's completely devoted to our own things. And sometimes that's, you know, relatively harmless. Sometimes that's awesomely destructive. As you see in the full-scale reality of what we see in our world today that things that are done by the hands of men just like you and me except they have given positions to allow their own native wickedness to just surface in ways that says let's, uh, let's, let's rain bombs out on an innocent population let's do these evil things that are all man-made um, destruction that's the human situation, and the only thing that could counterbalance that is the grace of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel for salvation. It's the power of Christ's work for us and, and the Spirit in us. If by the Spirit, he says, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, it's not the question of, let's define what sin is. Let's preach about sin till you hear it and understand it and feel miserable with respect to it. And then say, now you do something about this. You do something about this. You're living a life of sin. You're living a life of rebellion. You're living a life of disobedience. You're dishonoring God. Let me preach it to you a while. Tell you how wrong that is. How evil that is. How terrible that is. How bad you should feel about that. Now go do something about it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've heard preaching like that. I've heard preaching like that altogether too much. You do something about it. I don't need to hear that. First of all, I can't do anything about it myself. I need to hear God's done something about all this. God receives you freely in His Son. God has forgiven your sins. And now God, by the power of the Spirit, now that's, a new, that's a new deal. That's a new deal. When God, by the power of the Spirit, calls us to do something, again, we're given the great enabler. We're given the great enabler. And again, it's back in chapter 7 when you're, you're married to the law. <laughs> what, a, what a husband of law is. <laughs> do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you ask for help from the law, and the law says, sorry, that's not what I'm about. I'm here to tell you what to do, not to help you do it. And, 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 and he says that we've been, we died to the law um, through, through the death of Christ, that we should be what? Married to another. Married to another. And who's that? That's Jesus. We're called to be the bride of Christ. We're called to be uh, wedded to Christ. What a husband he is now. You come and say, Lord. He doesn't stop saying, do this, do this, do this. He does say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He does say those things. But he doesn't say that just so, here, feel bad about how awful your sin is. So now you do something about it. He says, no, no. He says, I'm here to help you. I'm here to, by my spirit, to bring you to conformity. I put you in my school to teach you. I, I, I'm, I'm at work in you to will and to do of my own good pleasure. Um, that's a different order of things, isn't it? It's some, that's, that's a preaching of duty infused with hope. Infused with hope. Infused with enablement that we are, we, we are more than conquerors, as you go on to say, through him who loved us. So through the Spirit we put... Um, to death the deeds of the body. 
And he goes on to say, well, let's just look at some of these things. And again, I'm not prepared to comment greatly on all of it, but I think it all fits within the structure of the things that we've looked at. Um, if you have questions, just feel free to put up your hands and I'll, I'll address anything you might have a question about. Um, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you know, again, you put it in this context that the Spirit has been given to conform us to the image of Christ. The Spirit is given to uh, enable our minds to think about the things of, of God. The Spirit has been given to regulate our walk in accordance to the will and ways of God. And, and this leadership of the Spirit is not just some sort of a subjective feeling. Uh, uh, you, know, you call up somebody this morning and say, uh, oh, Mr. Church, how come you weren't here? Oh, the Spirit led me to stay home this morning. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, he does that often, doesn't he? <laughs> and we tend to attribute our unwise choices to the Holy Spirit and his leadership. <laughs> no, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about some subjective, feeling-oriented leader, leadership. You know, we'll see you at church tomorrow. Well, let me see how the Spirit leads. <laughs> if the Spirit kind of tugs in my heart to go to church, maybe I'll do it then. Well, how about the Spirit's giving us uh, the book? Well, all scriptures have been given by inspiration of God. Holy men of God <laughs> wrote us led by the Holy Spirit. You think the Spirit's going to contradict the Word? No. The Spirit's going to speak, teach and speak in accordance with God's Word. So if God's Word says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you got enough information there that by the power of the Spirit you can be led to come to church. You know, you overcome the traffic. <laughs> you overcome the, um, the fact that they have the, the uh, walk-a-thon for whatever cause it is that people are walking on the roads and you have to kind of wait to get there. You get to church. You get to church. Overcome the obstacles and you get to church. And not give up. <laughs> the Spirit will give you the ability to persevere in the pathway of obedience. Anyone have any questions or comments? Uh, we got about five minutes. So I think I might pause here. Yes, Tim, go ahead. I was just going to ask, uh, do you think Paul, in a sense, would use his own experience as, as something, as an undergirding, like you say, a, a sub, sub thing uh, to what he's preaching or in his letter? You know, because he does say, you know, that he speaks of himself, the, of the wrestlings that he has, or has had in, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's a funny thing, because that's the very area where some of these people that speak about narrative substructures, they want to take Paul out of the equation and say Paul is speaking as if he was Adam, or Paul is speaking as if he was Israel, or something like that. As some of the British guys do this, and you know what I'm talking about, Ray. But uh, yeah, I never, never got that, never saw that. Yeah, he's talking about himself, and sure, yeah, absolutely, he's talking about his own experience. And, but again, his experience of Christ is um, is regulated and governed by Christ's coming and Christ dying and Christ rising. It's not that he's placing upon those his experience his own uh, take on things. Uh, but his experience is indeed Christian experience because it's rooted in the knowledge of Christ. His whole, whole conversion was just centered in Christ. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And sure, he came to understand the reality of uh, the body of Christ from that very ex encounter with Jesus. He's persecuting Jesus. Well, no, I'm not. I'm persecuting the church. Well, well, 
it's Jesus church and uh, you know you touch uh, the member and you touch the head and, and so that whole so much of what Paul says does have you're right uh, his own experience undergirding uh, as a the story that's undergirt a narrative substructure of Paul's own experience and Paul's own life. Um, you know, the, the reality that uh, Ananias comes to him and says, you're an elect vessel. Why do you think he talks so much about election? Well, because right at, his, right at the first part of his whole Christian experience, those are the things that were deeply impressed upon his own hardened conscience. Well, yeah, I think that's very true. Isn't it incredible how much we have to think about and how much we have to analyze? We're not going to get it all today. We're not going to get it all tomorrow. But these are good things to keep in our minds as we read our Bible. Yeah, think about Israel and its experience. Think about the story of Israel. Um, you know, there might be things, I mean, people use, as they're going along, they'll say, oh, here's David and Goliath. Or here's <laughs> I'm not sure how kosher much of that is, but hey, not bad to think about it. If nothing else has gotten you to take one passage of Scripture, compare it with another passage of Scripture, and how bad could that be? Just as long as you're not coming up with some conclusions that are not found in the Bible anywhere. Don't do that. Don't do that. Some people do that. They take the Bible and they put it together as a jigsaw puzzle, and man, they've never seen what the cover looks like, and they've made it into some kind of crazy jigsaw puzzle. Don't want to do that. And certainly you want to be regulated by the Bible's own teaching. But uh, again, God does speak in stories. He speaks in the story of Jesus. He speaks in the story of Israel. He speaks in the story of Paul's conversion. And yes, those writers do undergird what, uh, their own experience. We captured that this morning with Peter. Uh, the passage we're going to look at of Peter's encounter with Jesus at the Sea of Tiberias, uh, the things he learns, I think he takes right into 1 Peter chapter 5. And he speaks of himself as uh, an elder, who, exhorting elders, uh, one among you. What he tells them to do about shepherding the flock is exactly what Jesus told them to do. And so, yeah, that, those are lessons he never forgot. And that enters into his own letters. Yeah. And I was going to say, too, the, you know, the experience that we have on an individual basis uh, in our own story. I'm going to stop you there. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> there is. The truth that we've been speaking of. Yes. Well, again, it, our experience should be reflective of uh, these realities that we're talking about, about the story of Christ and the story of Israel and you know, connecting our own story so that our story is not, you know, I think it was Eldridge Cleaver who said uh, he became a Christian by Christ appearing him into the, in the moon or something like that. We, we don't want to go there. We know something so completely different and novel and not biblical. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, and of course we're always going to read uh, the text of Scripture with reference to our own experience of the grace of the gospel, and, and, and it's not wrong for people to you know, read the Psalms and maybe personalize it. Hey, I'm experiencing very much the same of the things these psalmists have experienced and personalized. Well, anyway, so I gave you most of what's here in the first 17 verses, not necessarily. Uh, in order, but at least in terms of the big picture. I hope you can then read the, the verses with better understanding, just having this before your mind. And God willing, we're going to take it up, uh, well, at least for verse 17, and then look at the whole matter of um, our glory, mm -hmm. of our glory, and glory in, in the midst of suffering. That, uh,
Paul takes up in the rest of it. And they're related, and we'll see how they are next week. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time together. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its riches. We're thankful that there's so many lines of of truth we can uh, properly uh, consider and uh, and endeavor to work out in our own lives for the purposes of edification, of understanding you and your ways more fully and perfectly. We're thankful that your word at the end of the day always leads us to Jesus, always leads us to what he's given to us and blessed us with and the fullness of our identity in union with him. And so we pray that you'd bless us with a deeper appreciation for all that we have in Christ, a deeper understanding of our calling in your grace, a deeper commitment to to both walk, worship, and war in accordance to your will and in accordance uh, to your mind and for your glory. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning. We ask you to bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.